This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Well, Australia voted no. The voice referendum was defeated. Every single state and the Northern Territory too voted no. So where do we go to from here? What does this mean for reconciliation in the future? What do young First Nations leaders feel about the result? We're going to be getting into all of that on this podcast, breaking down the votes, because they've also revealed a pretty significant divide when it comes to young people in this country. So we're going to unpack that a bit later. But first, here's Shalala Medora with The Wash Up. When you do the hard things, when you aim high, sometimes you fall short. As the dust settles on Saturday's referendum result, questions turn now to what comes next. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said on Saturday night that the country needs to work out how we can achieve reconciliation without a voice to Parliament. I'm optimistic that we can, and indeed that we must. There is a new national awareness of these questions. Dean Parkin from the Yes campaign said increased awareness of Indigenous disadvantage is a shining light for him. There has been some tremendous things that have been achieved, including a a, a grand... I think awakening for many Australians about some of the issues facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and um, there are shoots there for us to build on, absolutely. Politicians from all sides concede that Indigenous disadvantage is a problem that needs to be fixed, but they just can't seem to agree on how. No campaigner Warren Mundine left the door open to having a second referendum, saying there's a lot of support for recognising our first peoples in the constitution. You know, and most of Australia does. In fact, is in the 90% our poll that tells us that they, they want to do that as well. And despite floating the very same idea just a few weeks ago, opposition leader Peter Dutton today effectively closed the door on it. But I think it's clear that the Australian public uh, is probably over uh, the referendum process uh, for some time. Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe, who campaigned against The Voice because she didn't think it went far enough, said First Nations people will now be pushing for a treaty. You don't need a referendum for a treaty and you don't need a referendum for extra Senate seats in the Parliament. Now, I'd rather have blackfellas as senators with a vote that can change this nation than some advisory body with no teeth. But neither major political party has come out and said they want that. So where does that leave us? Here's a couple of things we do know. Peter Dutton said the Coalition will do a full-on audit of First Nations programs to make sure funding is well used, and that he's asked Aboriginal members of his team to create new policies. All of our policy uh, is going to be reviewed in the process uh, that Karen and Jacinta will lead now. And Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney flagged that there could be some changes ahead, but didn't tell us what. This is not the end of reconciliation. And in the months ahead, I will have more to say about our government's renewed commitment to closing the gap. Because we all agree we need better outcomes for First Nations people. One thing's for sure, it's going to take a long time for the rifts to heal, particularly for First Nations people who bore the brunt of a bruising debate. I think the No campaigners have a lot to answer for in poisoning Australia against this proposition. Yes, campaigner Marcia Langton said reconciliation is a way off. I think it will be at least two generations before Australians are capable of putting their colonial hatreds behind them. 
Some Yes campaigners are calling for a week of silence while they grieve the result, something Warren Mundine, an Aboriginal man, understands. I've been on the losing end a few times. You know, you put your passion and your heart and soul into all these things. And so, uh, you know, I can understand the pain. Yes supporter and Arante and Lurita woman, Catherine Little, said there's only one pathway back to reconciliation, and that was coming to terms with Australia's history. Well, we've been calling for truth-telling for a very long time, and truth-telling speaks to that. Um, I'd really like to see the Prime Minister lean in on that. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. And remember, if you are struggling a bit with what's happened on the weekend, there's always someone to speak with. 13 Yarn is an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander crisis support line. It's available 24 7. It's on 139276. Hey, let's get another take on all of this. Ben Abitangelo is a Gunai Kurnai and Wajabalak writer, a storyteller. We've spoken to him a few times this year about the voice, the referendum. Ben didn't support The Voice. He was part of what was called the progressive no. And he's with us now from Darwin. Hey, Ben, thanks for coming on Hack. Dave, thanks for having me back. How are you feeling after the referendum? I imagine there's probably a few different emotions. Yeah, first and foremost, I hold the hurt of the community who invested so much hope and time and energy and belief into the proposal and probably in extension of that, a belief into the ideas of Australia and, you know, the decency of its people and the fair go spirit that it says that it holds. So I hold, you know, a deep care for, for our community, but I suppose the the rejection doesn't sting me because, you know, I've, I've never taken this place on its words, but I've always taken it on its actions. And, you know, Australia is a penal colony that is incapable of feeling shame, in fact it, it, it thrives on it, was always going to take up the invitation to show itself for who and what it is. So within that, you know, duality of, of hurt for mob, I'm also really energised. This uh, reckoning and this realisation and this really clarifying moment that, you know, if we are going to assert ourselves and our rightful place in this country, then it's reliant on us going within. It's not reliant on us begging and and cajoling. I want to get into that in a bit, but just back to your comment that you made about, you know, Australia showing itself with this result. There's probably people listening thinking, well, you voted no yourself. Is it is it fair for you to call out the country like that when when you voted no? I mean, the easy thing and the predictable thing in this moment would be to focus on the 30% within the 3%, which would equate to what 1% of the entire population, probably less. If that's the, the analysis, then of course, you know, of course we're going to continue to look in on blackfellas. I mean, the, the, the reality is that the referendum, despite what was said on the ballot paper, has always been about the character of the colony. I can understand why people would listen and say, well, you voted no, like, isn't that hypocrisy? But, you know, I, I think we need to shift the gaze to where it belongs. And that's the 60% of the population who have said the most minuscule, minute proposal. They've said that is too much. 
and that's where I think the gaze needs to be held over the course of the next weeks, months and years. Well, looking forward, because you were speaking even before the referendum about what uh, we could expect if it was a no vote, and you were pretty optimistic about the prospect of uh, what was to come. You said you saw it as a regenerative opportunity. What do you mean by that? Can you explain that a bit? Well, we've spent two decades trying to cajole the conservative side of politics. We've minimised ourselves and sought to, to put forward proposals that they would consider. We've almost rewritten, you know, completely diminished our rights as sovereign Indigenous peoples and almost rewritten them in the sense where we've said, you know, all we want is to be heard. You know, we've said we want to advise the decision makers. When as First Nations people, what comprises that nationhood is explicit rights. It isn't to be advising the decision makers, it is to be the decision makers. So I'm really excited about this era of unmitigated blackness where blackfellas across the country are not going to um, continue to invest in these ideas and doctrines where there's one-way compromises. Uh, I think they're going to, and we are going to, assert our sovereignty and the inherent, explicit, inalienable rights that make up said sovereignty. So how do you do that? What does that look like? I feel like in the, the immediacy, there's a chance to pause. And I feel as though that there's portions of the population that are hurting and that want, you know, the week of silence, of mourning, of, of healing, of grieving. And then I think there's another cohort of blackfellas across the country where they're saying, you know, now isn't the time to be small, now is the time to be tall. Now is not the time to be silent, but it's to be very loud. You know, treaty has always been at the forefront of, um, you know, Indigenous peoples' aspirations. And I feel as though that some nations will want to pursue that. But ultimately, I think it's about upskilling ourselves and being really clear on the definitions of what our sovereignty is and what it means. Because everywhere else around the world, Indigenous peoples are not advising decision makers. They are the decision makers. And, you know, that level of autonomy and independence is our exclusive right. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Gunnar Kurnai and Wajibalak writer Ben Abitangelo about what comes after the referendum, after we've seen the results, the no vote that came in over the weekend. Ben, a lot's been said about the future of reconciliation in the country. Like, it's a concept that was adopted decades ago in this country. Some Indigenous leaders have said this no vote signals Australia's done with reconciliation. What do you think? It's a beautiful era of taking a lot of these really reductive doctrines to the scrap heap. I think Luke Pearson hit the nail on the head and said, you know, reconciliation has actually set the movement for Indigenous rights and the full expression of our sovereignty back by a few decades. Um, you know, it's reconciliation as a notion is, has always been about entrenching, um, you know, colonial systems and supremacy. There'd be people saying, well, no, reconciliation to me means walking together. It's something that signals cooperation. Why do you see it so differently? Well, I'd ask whether, like, if it's an engagement, first of all, there's no relationship. So there hasn't even been a process of conciliation. We're the only Commonwealth country uh, that doesn't have a formal, you know, binding agreement with its First Nations people. So there's no relationship as a starting point. But secondly, 
It's just been blackfellas coming to the table. Beyond that, we're not even meeting the rest of the place halfway. You know, we're, we're, we're extending ourselves far beyond anything that is reasonable. So I'm just not sure why we'd want to, um, you know, continue to waste time, energy, hope, belief, spirit on, you know, a clearly failed doctrine that, you know, sees one-way compromises um, and capitulation for us at the expense of propping up the rest of the system. Ben, there's going to be a lot of people listening now, maybe feeling deflated, maybe they voted yes and now think Australia missed a big opportunity. What would you say to those people? Stand up. You know, October 14 was a milestone moment, but it was neither the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. It was more so a moment of our collective becoming. So I think for those people that have invested time and spirit and hope into, uh, you know, this proposal and this moment of national understanding, then, yeah, now's not the time to lick your wounds and feel sorry for yourselves because ultimately there's, you know, young black kids that are going to school, you know, feeling the full wrath and, you know, the, the pointy tip of that rejection. So... You know, this was another moment in, um, you know, a very long, arduous movement, but it's a transformative moment within the becoming. And that's, again, what I'm really excited about. All right. Gunai Kurnai and Wajibalak writer Ben Abitangelo, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Appreciate your insight. Lots of messages coming through on the text line, people's uh, thoughts on the referendum results, uh, reasonings why uh, they voted the way they did. I want to shift the focus, though, now a bit and look at the figures from the referendum a bit more and what they tell us. Cos Samaris is a political researcher. He's with a group called Redbridge, which is a polling group, and he's also a former Labor Party campaign strategist and he's been breaking down the yes and no votes across the country where they were patterns those sorts of things hey cos thanks for coming on hack no problem at all what do you reckon the biggest takeaway is from this referendum result from a demographic point of view yeah there's two very significant takeouts one is obviously uh, university degree and income has a direct and powerful correlation with a yes vote based on the results that in areas where there are a high number of voters with a university degree, relatively high incomes, the yes vote was strong. Flip side, some of the poorest areas in the country had some of the highest no votes. Is there any idea why that is? Yes, look, there is a lot of different reasons why people voted no. But right at the top of that pyramid, so to speak, is a lack of information. When we surveyed a lot of Australians and we did that extensively during the campaign, the number one issue people will list as a reason why they're voting no, but more importantly, a reason why they were initially undecided then went to no, was they didn't have any information. So that's really a poor communication of skills exercised by those who are working on the Yes campaign. You've been following this right through the campaign and you've been mm. saying similar like things all the way through. I don't imagine you're too surprised by what you've seen. No. Why is it then that the Yes campaign kind of failed? Is it that they were targeting the wrong areas? A lot of their resources seem to be really focused on the suburbs that were already supporting the, the Voice. They would tell you that they made effort to talk to people in the outer suburbs, but in reality, it didn't really transpire. Good example, uh, the suburb of Elizabeth in Adelaide, where the launch of the Voice campaign occurred, 70% of voters across all those booths in that suburb voted no. Then when, you, when, when you, we talked to people in that suburb, did you see any 
campaign material? Were there any volunteers out there? The answer is universally, absolutely not. It was a referendum desert. We came across the same story right across the country. Were there any other interesting takeaways about young people in particular, or is it hard to kind of draw those conclusions uh, from the kind of data that you have? Oh, no, definitely differences. So, again, in a, in a city, very strong support for, for The Voice. When we go out to the outer suburbs, it starts to break up a bit. We surveyed young voters, 18 to 34 years, years of age, in the last week or so of the campaign. Many were not even aware there was a referendum. Many, when we pushed them on whether they knew any detail, the answer was no. Significant numbers of them were sitting in between being undecided or actually not planning to vote. And that doesn't surprise us because we know that lack of turnout in the outer suburbs is driven by young people who are disengaged from the political process. Yeah, it's interesting and definitely what we were hearing from our listeners as well, especially in that last week. Mm. And we had the Prime Minister on the show on Friday and we put it to him and said there are so many young people who actually still don't understand what they're voting on because a lot of this campaign was focused on how much support there was for the voice in First Nations communities. Can we tell much about that from these results? Yeah, we definitely can. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done in analysing the result at a much more granular level and our company, along with others, will be will be very much undertaking that work. But I don't expect our findings with regards to First Nations people will change from what we already know, and that is First Nations people in very significant numbers supported the voice. So what do we take out of this about our country, about Australia? Things like the geographical divide mm. or the socioeconomic divide, are they new things or is there is there more to it that we need to be paying attention to right now? There's definitely more to it. And we go back to young voters between 18 and 34 years of age in the outer suburbs. They are looking at the world in a very different way to their contemporaries who are further in town. These young voters find it far more difficult to commence a career, find work. They've got lower levels of university education. They don't trust established media. They are really difficult to reach from a communication perspective if you were trying to advertise to them political news. That's a, an important takeout because as the years roll on, their number doesn't change. It just increases. And what about the political parties? As someone who's worked in that space before, do you think politicians are going to be looking really closely at these results? And what do you think the most important message for politicians is? For the Labor side, it's a clear indication that they have a problem in communicating with their electorate. So by the time counting is finished, close to 80% of all Labor federal seats would have voted no. It's a pretty strong signal their constituencies are sending to those MPs. Flip side... For Dutton, his ability to form government is now a lot more difficult because those till seats were very strong in support of the voice. I find it unlikely the coalition will be able to um, win these seats back. So they will need to find another set of seats which they will have to target. I suspect the seats will, again, we go back to the outer suburbs of, of whether it's out of Western Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or Adelaide, where there's high mortgage stress, rental stress, I think that's where the coalition is going to go hunting in 2025. Cosmaris from Redbridge, thank you very much for coming on. Thank Hack. you. Cheers. And a lot more fallout we can expect over the coming week. We'll continue to cover it on Hack. Time to move on, though. Hack. The situation here is absolutely catastrophic. There is an impending public health catastrophe. On Triple J. We're turning to the Middle East now where the situation in Gaza is 
desperate. More than 4,000 people have died on both sides of the Israel-Gaza war since Hamas launched its terrorist attack on Israel last week. Now it looks like Israel's about to start a ground assault in Gaza with hundreds of thousands of people already getting out, but more than a million people still trapped there. Food, water, there's not much of anything in Gaza right now. And Israel's being warned by world leaders to follow the rules of war. Look, we're going to find out what exactly that means in a bit. But first, here's April McLennan with an update. I'm like really in fear. And like every every time I just have to have the thought of me dying in a bomb in Gaza. This young woman is holding her British passport and trying to find safety. She'd been visiting family in Gaza when everything changed. Like, it's it's not a good thing. Like, every place I go, I go run away. and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like, maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> it's been over a week since the Palestinian militant group Hamas launched a huge attack on Israel. The Israeli military says over 1,300 people have been killed, including 222 soldiers. Now Israel's been striking back against Hamas in Gaza, pounding the territory from the air. And Gaza is a really desperate place for the 2.3 million Palestinians who live there. Commissioner-General of the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency, Philippe Lazzarini, says it seems the war has lost its humanity. Every story coming out of Gaza is about survival, despair and loss. Thousands of people have been killed, including children and women. Gaza is now even running off body bags. The Gaza Health Ministry says 2,329 people have been killed and more than 9,000 injured in Israeli strikes. Israel has warned residents in Gaza's north to move south urgently. But the United Nations says the Israeli demand for over a million Palestinians to relocate is impossible without devastating human consequence. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has called on Israel to allow a safe passage for Palestinians fleeing the Gaza Strip and says while Israel has the right to defend themselves, they should operate by the rules of war. Let us be clear. Hamas is an enemy, but not just of Israel. Hamas is an enemy of all peace-loving Palestinian people who are left to pay a devastating price for this terrorism. Near the border of Gaza, troops are gathering and tanks are ready as Israel prepares for a ground offensive into the Gaza Strip. And Israel's defence force says soldiers are ready to attack Hamas by land, air and sea. Our responsibility now is to enter Gaza, take over spots where Hamas is based. We need to hit hard. Every spot, every commander, every combatant. Destroy the infrastructure. In one word, win. This has all increased fears of a broader regional conflict, especially if the Lebanese movement Hezbollah gets involved. They're backed by Iran. That would open up Israel to a fight on two fronts, which it reckons it's prepared for. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken had this message for Israel ahead of any ground offensive. Israel has the right, indeed it has the obligation, to defend itself against these attacks from Hamas and to try to do what it can to make sure that this never happens again. The way that Israel does this matters. 
needs to do it in a way that affirms uh, the shared values that we have for human life and human dignity, taking every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. With all this going down, more Aussies have been evacuated, with 255 people leaving Israel on three repatriation flights overnight. Two more flights are set to leave Tel Aviv tonight, but the government's warned they might be the last for a while. Back in Gaza, there's a desperate push to get aid to people in need since Israel stopped the flow of food, medicine, water and electricity into the area. Hospitals are one of the few places that are kind of safe but their supplies are also running out. If the generators stop, this hospital will become a mass grave. All these people are facing certain death. Relief groups are asking for an emergency corridor to be set up to bring in humanitarian aid. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan there, and today the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said Israel had the right to defend itself from Hamas's attacks, but called for Israel to operate by the rules of war. Heard similar comment from the head of the United Nations over the weekend saying even wars have rules. What does that actually mean though? Let's find out. Daniela Gavshon is the Australian Director of Human Rights Watch and she's with me now. G'day Daniela, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, nice to be here. What are we talking about when we say the rules of war? So the laws of war are often referred to also as international humanitarian law or some you might hear shorthand like called IHL. And IHL basically what it is is it's the body of law that regulates how wars are fought. So it doesn't look at whether a country or a militant group or whoever it is is justified in an attack on the whole, it looks at the individual attacks or individual, um, you know, incursions or whatever, you, individual actions and judges them based on the laws of war. So there are basic principles for each each attack. So one of the main fundamental parts of the laws of war are the distinction between civilians and combatants. So civilians can't be targeted, um, whereas combatants or militants are lawful targets. A civilian object can never be ta- can never ever be targeted, but a military objective can be. So it's those distinctions that the laws of war establish. And then once once something is established to be a military objective, there are then rules around how you are allowed to attack that. So you have to have basic principles of proportionality and necessity, and that's all underpinned in these laws of war. I guess the the problem that people have with with IHL or the laws of war is that it doesn't prohibit the use of violence. So in that sense, it's quite it's quite a frustrating body of law because it it accepts that there is. Um, a level of um, casualties that will happen. But what it seeks to do is to protect um, to the extent possible um, civilians and anyone caught up in the conflict by minimising harm and by by focusing on distinguishing between those military objectives and civilian objects. So who's keeping track of it? Who's the one that's monitoring and saying, well, you're following the rules or you're not? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, we're seeing at the moment, you know, a lot of organisations, NGOs, governments who are weighing in and and following that. Um, But, you know, the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, is sort of the keepers or the holders of international humanitarian law in many ways. Um, But ultimately, it's, you know, these things are assessed based on one, you know, rigorous, you know, um, analysis of the facts on the ground and really weighing up um, those. And and if it, you know, some of these... um, violations of the laws of war will amount to a war crime. And if 
a war crime is then prosecuted in a court, um, then those will be, you know, facts will be put forward and, and a judge will, will make the decision about whether they are in fact a war crime. Yeah, I was going to ask what does happen if a country doesn't follow these laws of war? It goes to the International Criminal Court. Is that what happens? Yeah, look, there are different ways that um, that we push for accountability. Um, domestic courts are responsible for prosecuting war crimes. Obviously, that's not feasible in many cases. Um, either countries are unable or unwilling to do that. Um, sometimes, if it's in a conflict, the you know the perpetrate the you know those perpetrating the crimes are those in power. Um, sometimes, the judicial infrastructure is biased or just inoperative. Um, so, you know, so it, domestic solutions aren't necessarily um, feasible in many cases. So the International Criminal Court is definitely um, one avenue that's really important. Um, and the International Criminal Court um, will need to have jurisdiction over a certain a certain alleged crime. But but that that's a really um, sort of useful avenue, an important avenue. And the other thing to note is that Geneva Conventions talk about war crimes um, and grave breaches, which is a sort of specific category of war crimes. Um, there is an obligation on states to prosecute um, to prosecute grave breaches, and so you do see something called universal jurisdiction cases, where you see other countries, um, and we've seen it in the case of France or Germany or the Netherlands, Spain, Switzerland, um, prosecuting um, war crimes that have occurred in in other areas, not their own countries. And just quickly, is there like an obligation to allow uh, humanitarian? agencies to get in and help people as well? Yeah, that is definitely a fundamental principle in international humanitarian law. Parties to a conflict have to facilitate the rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian aid, yeah. um, have to consent to relief operations taking place. They can't refuse on arbitrary grounds. Um, you know, they can take steps to ensure consignments don't include weapons or military material, but yeah. it cannot deliberately impede relief surprise. That is that is prohibited in international humanitarian law. Oh, it's interesting. There's a lot of discussion around this, obviously, at the moment, and we've seen it uh, over the past uh, few years as well with the conflict in Ukraine too. We appreciate your insight into that. Daniela Gavshon from Human Rights Watch, thanks for joining us on Hack. No problem. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.